I want to talk to you this morning about living the good life. The good life. Uh, we've been uh, going through this letter here uh, that Peter wrote to Christians scattered uh, around what we would now call Turkey. Um, and uh, we've reached the point here in chapter 3 where Peter is beginning to speak about relationships. Uh, we've been through uh, all the previous uh, stuff in this letter. I'm not going to recap that. But when we get to verse 8, he's been speaking to Christian people as citizens. He's been speaking to them about their world of work. He's been speaking to wives and husbands about marriage. And then he says in verse 8, as he begins to speak to church members, Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love us brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Last time we were looking at verse 8. And uh, if you weren't here last week, you can get a hold of the MP3 and, and listen to that. We were thinking about attitudes, I suppose. In verse 9, uh, now we're going to deal with the whole subject of how to deal with people who do not have your best interests at heart. Perhaps this is happening within the church. Perhaps now Peter's beginning to think too of people outside the church. What do you do and how do you relate to people who wish you harm? And uh, so the first question is, I suppose, why on earth do I entitle this the good life if we're thinking about the whole subject of retaliation and relationships with, with conflict? Why do I entitle this the good life? I think the Bible is um, very interesting. And uh, we, if we're going to work out what the Bible really says, we need to take notice of the little words and the little word that I want you to notice is the very first word of verse 10 where Peter says the word for. And uh, that's, that's an interesting word and you can get a sense of this. He speaks in verse 8 and 9. What he's really saying is live like this for. I suppose you could re replace that little word for with the word because, couldn't you? That's what it really means. Live like this because... And then he quotes from the Old Testament. There's a little thing there in quotation marks. This is a little passage from Psalm 34. I wonder whether Peter must have been reading Psalm 34 on the morning that he wrote this letter because all the way through this letter there's little references. Sometimes a quote. You'll notice, um, for instance, in chapter 2 and verse 3 on the same page there, he says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, it says exactly that phrase in Psalm 34. Here he quotes from Psalm 34 directly. So I wonder whether he's been reading it this morning before he wrote this letter. Um, there's a, I think Peter here, just as an aside, sees a massive connection between King David in the Old Testament and the situation that these people are in here in the first century. And I think that's one of the reasons he uses Psalm 34. And we're going to think about that connection next week. And uh, it's good for us to see how the Old Testament relates to the New and what we can learn and how relevant that is. So we're going to think about David and this psalm and how that's relevant to these people and what they're going through in, in Asia Minor where they live. 
But it, that little word because is important. What Peter says is, I want you to live like this because this is the good life. Look at what he says. He quotes from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must live in a particular kind of way. So that little word for is important. I want you to live like this, Peter says, because this constitutes the good life. I think it's fair to say that everyone wants the good life, don't they? To love life and to see good days. Doesn't that sound great? Is that not what we all want? I suppose the question is, what, it, what is it? What is the good life? Well, just for a little bit of uh, fun, some, some of you will remember a TV series called The Good Life. You'd be showing your age if you remember that. Yeah. The Good Life was a TV series that was a sitcom. Which I think it was in the 1970s, way before my time. I don't remember it at all. I've seen pictures of it. But... Um, I probably do remember as a little boy. I think it, I think uh, it was nineteen early seventies, mid seventies. And these guys, the good life for them was having chickens, growing their own food, and there was like this couple who had pigs and chickens who lived next door to this really posh couple, and they called it the good life. Well, we thought we would ask the good people of Rotherham what they think the good life is. And uh, so here, I'm going to show you a little video. Uh, of some of their answers and we based it on the Good Life sitcom so those of you who are old enough can have a little reminisce and uh, Jar's going to just pull it up for us I think here's our here's what the people of Rotherham think the Good Life is
charity. It's fantastic. That was just on Friday. Uh, the good people of Rotherham. What about that? What do you think the good life is? No war. Less work. More money. Health and happiness. Living near the sea. That was a good one. The good life is being near the sea, the lady said. Less trouble so you can go out and enjoy yourself. That's a big issue for older people, isn't it? Providing for yourself, having a happy family. And uh, what about the poor woman at the end who said that she didn't have a good laugh? Uh, maybe that's many people's experience. What is the good life then? And where's Peter going to take us as we think about this whole idea of the good life? I, I suppose the first thing I want to say before we get into the subject of relationships is the good life is not what the world often thinks it is we're thinking about uh, a psalm here that David wrote Psalm 34 David had a son called Solomon who became king after him and uh, we couldn't film Solomon answering this question but thankfully in the Bible Solomon wrote down his ideas about the good life and the pursuit of the good life if you just flick back with me in the Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes uh, so page 669 if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles if you haven't, all the best um, it's one of those little books that you'll take about five minutes to find page 669 um, in um, chapter 1 and verse 12 of Ecclesiastes Solomon was a great king and he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He set himself the task of working out what makes people tick and what constitutes the good life. He made it his business to study people in uh, verse 17 of that chapter he, uh, he says that he, he, he applied himself to the understanding of wisdom and of madness and folly he looked at education he looked at the great projects that people get involved in uh, and, and his conclusion was there in verse 17 that this too even education, philosophy is meaningless it's a chasing after the wind so he thought to himself in chapter 2 maybe I need to seek pleasure great pleasure but even that proved to be meaningless he tried laughter he looked for things that had great comedy value that would cheer his heart and make him laugh in verse 3 he says I tried getting hammered I chased myself with wine and embraced folly is that the good life? I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Verse 4, he undertook great projects. He had lots of stuff. He built houses, vineyards, gardens, parks. He planted trees. He made reservoirs. He had slaves, servants, herds, flocks, silver, gold. 
if we think of modern day celebrities, this guy was a celebrity in his own day. There was nothing he couldn't do or didn't have. He was looking for the good life. He says in verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labour. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had taught to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He realises in the next few verses that being wise is better than being stupid. But then he realises that the wise and the stupid both die anyway. So, what's the point? And he comes to the conclusion in chapter 2 and verse 17, So I hated life. He comes to the point where life itself is distasteful for him. In chapter 4 he says that people who have died, people who have died are better off than people who are alive, but better still are the people who haven't been born yet. What a cynical view of life. Here's a man who looked for the good life. This guy was well rich. He could compete with any modern day celebrity. The Queen of Sheba came to visit him and she was no common woman and what she saw made her jaw hit the floor this guy had it all and yet he was grumpy and not happy at all the good life is not what the world often thinks it is the things he'd saw the stuff he loved all the things he had experienced left him cold and that's a challenge isn't it the good life isn't often what the world thinks it is came across a very sad story this week uh, maybe you've seen in the news a, a very large company uh, a housing services company has gone effectively gone bust in the news this week um, just about a month ago the share price of this company was over £3 and it dropped all the way down to 10p and there's a certain man on an internet chat forum who thought this company can't go bust they employ 10,000 people so he sold his car and invested £5,000 of his money in these shares because they were 10p and he woke up on Tuesday morning, as I did actually, the alarm went off at 7 o'clock and the first headline was, this company's gone into administration. And he told his partner and she threw him out. How have you thrown away five grand of our money? And he wrote on this internet chat forum, my life's falling apart today. He was pursuing the good life. And he lost his car, his five grand, and his partner the good life is not what the world often thinks it is just coming back to 1 Peter I want to uh, make another point and that is that the good life is possible 
even when things are hard. Now that is a radical concept, isn't it? It's certainly a radical concept for our world. What do I mean by that? Well, Peter here is writing to Christians who live in a very brutal first century culture. We know, as we've been going through this, that these Christian people are under pressure. Some of them are being very seriously persecuted. The, the, the atmosphere is, is not conducive for them living peaceful, easy lives. How on earth would you, as a Christian leader, have the cheek to write to these suffering people and even quote from the Old Testament about the good life? Are you joking, Peter? <laughs> Some of our friends have just been killed for their Christian faith. Some of us have lost our jobs, our property. Some of us have been thrown into prison. And you've got the cheek to quote Psalm 34 and talk about the good life. Are you pulling our leg? Can you see the kind of the, the, the potential there for surprise? I, I want you to see that Peter, on that basis, must believe that the good life is not found where Solomon looked for it. If these people can know the good life, it cannot consist in the kind of things that the world think it consists of, can it? Is that, is that clear? That, that, that's an obvious point to make. Peter's point here is not to patronise them. He knows their struggles. But his point is, I want you to live like this in spite of your difficulties because living like this is what constitutes the good life. And so we can see then that the good life is really about having healthy attitudes rather than having perfect circumstances. In Psalm 34 it begins with the right attitude towards God, doesn't it? The good life isn't godless, but godly. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord, the living God, are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. The good life begins with a healthy, right relationship with God. But Peter here takes that a step further and shows us that a healthy relationship with God should lead to radically different relationships with one another. I've, I've said this to you before, I think what can often happen in life is that often we're living life on an if-only basis, aren't we? And we say to ourselves, if only this were true, or that were true, or this wasn't true, then, then, I would be truly happy. But what that is doing is making your circumstances the dominating king over your life. If this happens, and if this happens, then I'll be truly happy. But for many people that leads to discontentment, restlessness, worst of for some, even despair and bitterness. 
sometimes we think like this as well. We say to ourselves, if everyone else was living the good life, then I will as well. (laughs) But everyone else isn't living the good life, so I can't do it either. And And we make other people the kind of determining factor. If they treated me right, then I would live the good life. The whole letter that Peter writes here throbs with that, doesn't it? He says to them, be a good citizen, even though the government's rubbish. Be a good employee, even though your master's whipping you. Be a good wife, even though your husband's not a Christian and doesn't understand what's happened to you. Be a great church member, even if the others treat you badly at times. We need to make sure, don't we, that our attitudes dominate our circumstances and not the other way around. Do you get that from 1 Peter? Whatever happens to you, your own attitude is your own choice. No one can make you think the way you do. Whatever happens to you, your attitude to life is your choice, not someone else's. And so I think now we're able to say a little bit more of that important little word for. Peter says, I want all of you to live in this way because this is what constitutes the good life. If you want to love life and see good days, live in relationship with God and focus on your attitudes and your relationships and make sure that they're healthy. Last time we unpicked verse 8 and as I said you can listen to that. We're going to get into this subject of retaliation and uh, so here we go. The good life then is, is all about verse 8 but in verse 9 the good life is not about getting even. I want you to notice that this is just a simple straightforward command do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult don't do it the Greek is very strong here if you are doing it, stop doing it if you're not doing it keep on not doing it it is not appropriate for a Christian to retaliate when someone treats you unkindly unfairly or or gives you abuse deliberately do not respond in kind it's there in the Old Testament here's a quote from Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 29 where the writer says don't say I'll do to him what he's done to me I'll pay back that man for what he did there's a verse from Proverbs it's exactly the same thing there in the Old Testament I'll pay him back just wait to don't do it, don't go there Jesus too said it Luke chapter 6, Jesus said I tell you who hear me love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who ill treat you wow <laughs> They're radical words. Oh, should we stop there? Just like that, thinking. Wow. 
everyone knows how to love their friends. No issue with that. Loving your enemies? Paul says it. This is from Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friend. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now we've got Peter saying it. It's like a stuck record, isn't it? Peter's saying exactly the same thing here. We'll leave that there for a minute. I, I wonder, you know, when people became Christians in the first century and they did their first course, you know, Christianity, Christianity for Dummies, when, the, when people became a new Christian and they were taught, I, I often wonder whether lesson number one was don't pay people back when they hurt you. It's all over the New Testament. Jesus said it, Peter said it, Paul said it. It's kind of a lesson that runs through the whole Bible. And maybe this is the first lesson for a new Christian. Getting your own back is not like God and it's not appropriate if you're a Christian now. Notice that Peter speaks about both behaviour and speech. Sometimes people can do things that hurt you by you know, evil behaviour, if you like. Sometimes people can hurt you with their speech. They can insult you. They can say things to your face. They can say things about you to other people and do you down. Peter is talking about both. And he says to them, do not trade insults. We might say, if someone calls you a Christian dog, don't call them a pagan pig. That, that's really the, that's the level we're on, isn't it? If they call you a name, don't just escalate and call them a nasty one and then wait for them to call you a nasty one. That kind of behaviour has got to stop for a Christian. The world might say, sometimes you see this on the back of cars, don't you? Don't get even, get mad. That isn't appropriate for a Christian. And I want you to remember too, Peter isn't living in an ivory tower here. This is the guy that tried to chop off someone's ear with his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. So he knows what it feels like to react in a way that is not like this. He's not living in an ivory tower. He's had to learn this lesson himself from the Lord and in his life. But there's more yet that makes this even more radical. It's one thing not to retaliate. That's hard enough, isn't it? But that isn't all that Peter says, and it's not all that Jesus said. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. If it stopped there, we could kind of really steal ourselves. Couldn't we say, oh, okay, I'm not going to react. I'm, sell a tape over the mouth. I'm gonna... But that... What does Peter say? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. He's not just saying ignore it. He is saying, I want you to go out of your way to bless those who do you harm. I don't want you to miss that. This isn't about kind of just keeping quiet. I'm just going to ignore them, give them a wide berth. Peter is saying, I want your hearts to be so radically changed that not only do you ignore 
the fact that people do you harm, but you go out of your way to give them what they don't deserve. Wow. What does that mean in real life? How do you bless someone? Bless you, my child. It's not that, is it? <laughs> How do you bless someone? Well, the, when we talk about God blessing us, when we talk about blessing, it really means God has our best interests at heart. God intends to do us good. Blessing someone is about doing everything you can to help them. So to bless someone, as Peter says here, it means that you have the desire in your heart not to smash their lights out, but to do them good. Is there something you can do for them, however little, to show them that you care for them, practically? Do you pray for them? Do you speak well of them even though they may be speaking very badly of you? Is your inward spirit one of seeking the best, seeking their ultimate well-being? Or do you just think, ha, they deserve everything they're getting? Can you even thank God for them? Can you say to yourself, Lord, what do you want me to learn? The world would say, if someone abuses you verbally, you don't have to take it. Stand up for your rights. Assert yourself. Let them know that you have more self-respect than that. But God says, if someone insults you, bless them. Say something kind to them in return. How on earth is that possible? Well, I want to uh, give you one last point, and there's a couple of subpoints under this as well. So we think about the good life and relationships. I want to close with this last point: the good life is about treating others like God treats you. And uh, we're going to maybe think about this a little more next week but I just want you to notice the last clause of verse 9 do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing because to this you were called God himself has called you to this why? so that you may inherit a blessing oh, I've, I've been grappling with this during the week and I, 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 I'm wondering how to say this to you. I think the best way to say this is there's two sides to this. And the first side to it is motivational. God has blessed you, so you should bless others. That's the first side of it. That's motivational. Let's just linger there for a minute. The truth is that we don't deserve God's blessing, do we? The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still God's enemies, rebels, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God 
does not treat us as our sins deserve but has graciously and extravagantly and generously given us his very best actually his son so Peter writes to these people and says you, you, you are going to inherit a blessing God has your best interests at heart individually and corporately God has called you to himself he's made you his own he's achieved all of this through Jesus who died to save you from your sins and selfishness he loves you and he wants you to know him and enjoy him And because God has treated you that way, the whole thrust of this letter is that you also should reflect those traits. The point is, I think, that you can't live this way until you understand what God has done for you. It just you can't you can't pull your socks up and try and do this unless you fully grasp who you are and what God has done for you. C.H. Spurgeon was a preacher in the last century and uh, he said this every man should give away according to what he has he who gives out curses probably gives them out because he has so much of them in himself you get that? you can always tell what a man is like by noticing what comes from him if he curses it's because cases abound in him. But you are to give blessing to others because you've inherited so much blessing from Christ. Your whole tone and temper and spirit and language and action should be the means of blessing others. So the question is, what are you full of? If you're always seeking to give out casing, what is your heart full of? If you're full of awareness of what God has done for you through Christ, that will shape the way you relate to other people. If you know that God has blessed you, you will then be able to bless others. This is a great principle in the Bible. You remember old Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis? God came to Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a what? A blessing. This is the great principle in the Bible. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. God gives so that we'll give. In fact, God said to Abraham, the whole nations of the earth will be blessed through you. He blessed him so that he could be the means of blessing. So the mark of a true believer this is the motivational part, is that they will behave to some small degree in the same way that God behaves. When you experience God saving you, transforming you, blessing you, making you his own, you will naturally reflect that blessing. But here's the other side. The other side of this coin is a warning. And this is it. And this is where I come back to the good life. If you want to enjoy God's blessing, if you want to experience and appreciate what God has done for you and is doing for you, you must live this way. Because if you don't live this way, 
a cloud will hang over your experience of God's blessing. You will hinder your enjoyment of God's presence in your life if you cling to holding grudges, being bitter. Your enjoyment of God will cease. It will wither and die. And that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? It's a great warning in that. Let me illustrate this with uh, Peter himself. Peter, 30 years before writing this letter, came to Jesus thinking he was really smart one day. In the, in the Jewish mentality, the mentality was you can forgive someone three times and then you can punch his lights out, basically. I don't know what a Hebrew for that is. But the idea was, you know, you should forgive, but three times and that's it. After three times, you can go and get him and you can paste him. So they had this idea three times, that was enough. Do you remember when Peter came to Jesus? He thought he was being really smart. So he thought to himself, I'm going to double that and add one. I'm going to make myself look super uber cool and forgiving. Lord, if I forgive someone seven times, that would be great, wouldn't it? And he's expected Jesus to say, Peter, you're a top man. What a great guy. I'm so pleased that you're so responsive to my teaching. The Jews say three and you've doubled it and added one. You're a great guy. What does Jesus say? Peter, what a load of tosh. You need to forgive seven times, 77 times, 7,000 times. I don't know what the exact phrase was. The point is, there's no limit on how many times you forgive Peter. You've missed the whole point. Don't try and draw a line there or there or there and think you're better or more forgiving than someone else. You keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until you've multiplied seven by seven million times. And then Jesus goes on to tell a story. And the story is about a master who has a number of servants and uh, the master's owed some money by one of his servants and the servant comes in and he owes him something like a million pounds. And he's desperate and he comes and he throws himself at the master's mercy and says, I haven't got any money to pay. I've got a family. Please have mercy on me. And the master is a good man and obviously a wealthy man. And he says to the guy, okay, don't worry. I'm going to write off your debt. Imagine that. Your slate is wiped clean. And the guy goes out and before he even gets out of earshot he bumps into one of the other servants who owes him £3.50. And he grabs hold of him and he thrusts him up against the wall and says, when are you going to pay me that £3.50 you owe me? The other servants, when they find out what's happened, they go to the master and they say, do you know what just happened? You've just written off a million quid and he's just tried to choke this guy for £3.50. And the, and the master calls him back in and said, the deal's off. Get yourself into prison and make sure, Mr. Prison Guard, that you torture him until he's paid every last penny. Do you know what Jesus said at the end of that story? He said some very chilling words. He said, this is how my Father in Heaven will treat you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. 
They're not my words. That's Jesus' words. What a chilling comment that is. If you don't forgive your brother from your heart, my father will treat you like that master treated that servant. Did he deserve it? Of course he did. And what is the point of the story? The point of the story is, you're a sinner. God has forgiven you. Jesus has died to save you from your sins. And you want to throttle your brother for £3.50? What is that all about? Jesus' point is, you cannot enjoy God's presence and blessing in your life if you withhold it from other people. It will not work. You'll be miserable. And God will seem very far away. So there is a motivational side to this. Treat others as God has treated you. That's good. But there's a big warning here. If you don't treat others as God treats you, you'll never be able to enjoy the good life. So do you want to live the good life? Don't look for it in the wrong place. Why is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible? Because it shows to every single person who reads it not to look for the good life in the wrong place. Don't think that you can't live the good life just because your circumstances are hard. Don't complain and get bitter about how unfair everything is and how wrong other people are. Cultivate your relationship with God and ask him to transform your attitudes because the good life is about healthy relationships that are fragranced with the grace of God. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. For to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Oh, man.